Hey, welcome back in. Before we go back to the phones, I want to briefly tell you about the Freedom Foundation. We're grateful for their support at the Ohio Press Network. The Freedom Foundation, make sure that you understand the rights that you have after that Supreme Court Janus decision. If you are seeking a government job, you don't have to join the union in order to get that job. And if you have that job, you don't have to join the union or pay union dues if you're not in the union. And they can help you with all of that. Go to optouttoday.com. See how you can simply and seamlessly opt out of your union, saving on average $1,100 per year and maybe better, uh, cutting off funding from union bosses who often use those dollars for progressive causes, whether that's in our government or our schools. So thank you to the Freedom Foundation. Go to optouttoday.com to learn more. Uh, he is dean of the Robert W. Plaster School of Business and professor of economics at Cedarville University. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Heyman, thank you for sticking with us. Glad to be here. Okay, so uh, I had a couple questions lined up, and I think I know the answer to one of those questions. I, I was going to talk about Axios is, you know, thumping the drum and saying that unions are back. They have collective bargaining power they hadn't had in 40 years. And, and I think what you just said was, well, it's more a function of supply and demand in the labor market than it is uh, negotiating skills. But nonetheless, they will use that drum to raise uh, union dues and, and, and get more money. Let me ask you this question, though, and I think you, you, you said something about the winner's curse. You, you, they won the auction, but they paid a high price. So who's going to carry the cost of this? Is it, is it government? Is it the business? Is it consumers? How do you see this shaking out? Yeah, well, it's uh, there's a wide range of people that, that could and, and will pay ultimately. Uh, the union wants to, to, to act as if, and, and generally progressives in general, that, that businesses have all these tons of profit. There's this massive you know, pack of gold in the back corner. If, if we just negotiated better, if they weren't simply greedy, they'd give it over, which, is, of course, is not true. On, on average, American companies uh, don't make that much as a, as a, as a profit level. Ne- nevertheless, uh, with that, uh, because they don't really have those prob- profits, and, w- and we can point, you know, they can talk to high profits all day long that they're making right now, and they are making some pretty good profits. But, but re- let's remember that, that Ford, for instance, just in the second quarter lost like four and a half billion on this EV transition. Mm-hmm. This EV transition is being mandated by the, the federal government uh, because of the way they've implemented the fuel economy standards. So, so they've got to. to uh, uh, find a way to get profits in their main business to fund this transition. And, oh, by the way, we're, we've already seen over the last week or two, the EV market, it's it's dying. People yep. do not want these cars. It's, 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 it, with the stimulus, you always see in new technology, by the way, uh, firms that will – too many people invest in a given technology, and then there's a bloodbath and a bunch of it goes out of the way. Yep. When you couple that with government massive government subsidies to encourage this, You've got way too many competitors. The EV market isn't going to be large enough. And oh, by the way, we have not yet driven the cost structure down to be even remotely comparable with the uh, the internal combustion engines that they're replacing. So, so that's all problematic for these companies. So, so you ask who's going to pay? Well, the, the companies are forces. For instance, it's going to raise the the uh, the cost of production like nine hundred dollars per vehicle. Yeah. Well, you would say they might be able to pass it on. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. The firms actually do end up eating the cost, in which case, in which case, then the investors are going to leave the General Motors and the Ford, and, and they're going to invest their money elsewhere, That's right. which is going to further dry up their ability to, to do things. Uh, uh, consumers will pay moderately higher prices at some level. There will be a, a split, but you're going to see more of a transition, again, to the foreign competitors. Uh, people have shown that they'll buy a Honda, they'll buy a Hyundai, they'll buy something else. Uh, they're not necessarily beholden to higher-priced uh, American cars. My real fear, 
my real fear is that this could because they've, they've uh, bought in at a high at the peak of profits, it, we could see the, the companies go bankrupt again. And we know what will happen if they go bankrupt. They will be bailed, <laughs> bailed out, out the taxpayer. You and me. And, and so that's my real fear is that you and I will end up, and your listeners will end up paying for this. And uh, so I might make this the final question, depending on how, how we get into it. But what I just heard you say is that um, you know companies may eat that cost. They may pass it along. But we have consumers who are already frustrated. I mean, gas prices maybe have settled a little, but they're still relatively high. And when they buy food, they're, they're frustrated that they're getting very little food for the buck that they're paying. Now, let's talk about the Consumer Confidence Index, uh, Present Situation Index, and Expectations Index, all down as of yesterday. The one that's really interesting is this Expectations Index, which is at a level that signals um, consumers believe that we're in for not only a contraction, but a recession next year. Doesn't that spell even more disaster? I mean, is that how you read those numbers that came out yesterday uh, for the auto uh, industry you know, and economy overall? Yeah, I mean, expectations are, are important, but I, I, I think they're much more important rather than consumer expectations. Um, but what would be on the business side of the expectations? Because here's the thing that we see, like in recessions, uh, even in the global financial crisis, for instance, the American consumer is happy to spend if their if they if their payroll and the money that comes in um, keeps coming in, they'll keep spending. Yeah. We are in, in the great financial crisis. The the uh, spending by the consumers reached its previous high nine months after the the. Uh, the previous peak and the, the trough and everything, whereas it took uh, about six years before business fixed investment came back. So, so as long as reality doesn't match their expectations, they'll keep spending. So that doesn't bother me quite as much. Uh, but, but it does. It, it's not positive for sure, uh, and, and it does lend to the fact I think there's some some uh, uh, genuineness to this uh, because what we see, we need to understand the consumers. What, what we're really seeing is a sharp divergence. There are quite a, a number of uh, consumers that are severely stressed. We're seeing it in, in some of the uh, the uh, delinquencies, the yep. credit card late payments, those kinds of things. Whereas other consumers are still pretty flush. The excess excess savings, as they say, from the COVID uh, uh, stimulus, all the stimulus spending that they did, it appears to be higher than we thought before. But it's not equally distributed. Consumers, on average, don't still have excess. Uh, spending capacity. Some are severely struggling. So, so I think it's going to be kind of a mixed bag. Uh, the real question is, is what's going to happen on the business side of the house and the continued high interest rates uh, that, that are coming? That's, I think, a bigger, bigger issue. All right. So we've got about a minute and a half here. The expectation is that the Fed may not touch rates today, um, but may in the future. Do you see that? And, and maybe that already came out. I haven't, haven't had a chance to read up. Uh, what does that signal to you? Well, I'm I'm a little bit older school. I think interest rates are important, but much more important than interest rates are what are they doing with the quantity of money? And the Fed is still doing its quantitative tightening. They have, after being egregiously wrong in adding five trillion dollars to their balance sheet uh, in the aftermath of COVID, they've taken over a trillion dollars out, and they continue by week to uh, withdraw money from the economy. And I think that's what's being the, the largest contributor towards the, uh, the 10 year uh, and the higher, the, the long term yields going up uh, because they are no longer there to be uh, buyers of treasury debt. They are actually sellers. So we saw the treasury department come up, have to come up with their plan, how they're going to sell this. And, and it's not clear to me who is going to step up and buy uh, treasuries now. That's why I think we've seen uh, such, such a sharp t- uh, uptick in long term rates. Outstanding. 
Um, I guess we still have about a minute here. Uh, actually, 45 seconds. I'm going to ask another curveball question and give me your best short answer, and then we'll we'll tease this for our next segment because we'll have you on again soon. Um, I don't think trickle-down economics is a real economic theory, but the left loves to use it to criticize uh, fiscal and monetary policy of conservatives. Uh, so short answer, is is trickle-down economics even a real thing? Well, it's, it's never been a real thing, and if you, you're uh... – listeners want to Google, uh, Thomas Sowell has a great little uh, nine-pager on trickle-down economics and how it never was trickle-down. And trickle-down in in the the, uh, really abomination of what it said is, hey, if you give rich people some money, it'll flow down the poor. That is not what what, what conservatives have ever said. Conservatives and everybody should be what we would call a supply-sider at some level. All supply-side economics does is say people respond to incentives, and we know they do. You give them government subsidies, shock, they'll make EVs. If you give them a tax cut so their their take-home pay goes up, generally you get a a larger share of labor supply. Uh, That's all we mean by by supply-side economics. It's not the idea of you give rich people something and it'll flow down the poor. That's the pejorative, which they have an uh, an agenda uh, behind that. Uh, but, but incentives do matter. I say that's, I always call that the second law of economics. So every, the first law of economics is scarcity. The second law of economics is incentives matter. They and do. So, so that's all we need to do, think about. How can you encourage production? Because the key economic problem is production, not consumption. We consume pretty doggone easily. Hey, Dr. Jeffrey Heyman, thank you for spending time with us today on The Bruce Hulley Show. We deeply appreciate your insight. Is your head spinning? Mine is. What a great discussion uh, with Dr. Jeffrey Heyman. I'm, I'm kind of a, an economics wonk, so um, I, I prize conversations like that. I, I love having conversations with someone who can get behind the talking points of both sides, both the left and the right, and say, well, here's what's really going on. Here's what's driving that negotiation with UAW. It's, it's supply and demand. And did you catch it? By the way, uh, what he said at the end, he, he talked about a nice uh, nine-pager from Thomas Sowell, uh, and that kind of debunks this idea that trickle-down economics. I mean, if you're on social media at all, you you see progressives and Democrats uh, crying about economic policies driven by Republicans. Those evil Republicans they believe in uh, they believe in trickle-down economics. G- give everything to the rich, and they'll give it to the poor. But look at all these profits of companies and look at look at our skyrocketing homelessness right but it was interesting what Heyman say he said um it's supply side economics it's not trickle down economics not even an official policy uh but people respond to incentives it's kind of the old carrot or the stick right i'm going to incent you or if you're a behavioralist you believe people act to avoid pain so the stick or to pursue pleasure, the carrot. So uh, supply-side economics really is about people responding to incentives. And uh, he's absolutely right about that. Hey, um, coming up on the next segment, I can't wait. We've been, we've been waiting a while to get him on. Uh, he's been super busy. I wonder why. Uh, Congressman Warren Davidson, he's a member of the House Financial Services Committee. And, uh, you know, they've got this uh, 12 bill up uh, 12 appropriations that they have to iron out. And so 
they've been, uh, I'm certain, uh, all over that. But before that, they were in conference and cussing and discussing who the next speaker would be. So when Congressman Davidson comes on, I want to talk with him about Israel, about Ukraine, about the 12 appropriations bills that still need to be finalized and put over the finish line in order for the government not to shut down. And by the way, give me a call, 844-TALK-989. That's uh, 844-825-5989. Do you care if the government shuts down? (laughs) I know that's terrible, but I think the average person goes, bro, look at my receipt from Kroger. Really? I I have to balance my budget, and it's getting harder every day because uh, the rich men north of Richmond keep spending and keep ignoring what I need. So you all can just shut down. Uh, I just wonder if that's if that's the sentiment. Give me a call and let me know what your thoughts are. But uh, nonetheless, the House would have to get 12 appropriations bills over the finish line in order to avoid a shutdown in, in mid-November. And uh, yesterday we talked about, and by the way, I'm working on uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, who is a member of the powerful, not a member, he's the chairman of the powerful House Judiciary Committee. They... along with the Government Oversight Committee, they're hardcore investigating the Bidens. So there's this Biden impeachment inquiry. And uh, you may remember, I talked to you yesterday about a headline we had at the Ohio Press Network that uh, Joe Biden has uh, now about 82,000 documents that the uh, National Archives um, identified based on a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit brought by Southeastern Legal Foundation, uh, emails that he sent with pseudonym email accounts. Some of them found their way to his son, not a government employee, uh, Hunter Biden, on things such as the dealings in Ukraine and talking with their president and the release of uh, an American hostage in Turkey so um, I'm interested to see if Biden's impeachment inquiry is uh, is still on the front burner. It appears that it is. So Israel, Ukraine, appropriations bills, Biden's impeachment inquiry. You know, uh, FDR said that you, you judge a man by his enemies. Well, we're going to talk to Congressman Davidson about new speaker Mike Johnson because uh, judging, if you just go out to Google and you type in uh, Mike Johnson. Actually, let's do that right now. There we go. There it is. Mike Johnson. Enter. Ah, here it is. (laughs) Here are the headlines. Before he became a politician, House Speaker Mike Johnson partnered with an anti-gay group. Uh, Does the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, have a bank account? Speaker Johnson's wealthy Louisiana donors could become key funders. Mike Johnson tests his new power with risky gambit in Israel. And, uh, a kind of Stepford wife. It's more than a prayer keeping Mike Johnson's wife does. So uh, he's got enemies in the press. I wonder why. And uh, one of those articles, by the way, I want to take a look at this one. Uh, used to be the Clinton News Network, CNN. Now what are we going to call him? The Communist News Network. Uh, before he became a politician, House Speaker Mike Johnson partnered with an anti-gay conversion therapy group. Speaker of the House, uh, Mike Johnson, closely collaborated with a group of mid to late 2000s that promoted conversion therapy. 
a discredited practice that asserted it could change the sexual orientation of gay and lesbian individuals. Because remember, we're still supposed to believe that that gay and lesbian individuals are not equipped to make choices. Um, and I'm going to stop at that sentence right there because I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make you really uncomfortable. I'm going to give you a little story that uh, I had told to me by a very good friend, a deep believer in Christ. The guy actually had a death experience um, about eight years ago. He had a heart attack, was dead for 10 minutes, um, came back and uh, it was all, all, always a guy that, you know, practiced his life in a way that he wanted other people to treat him, but certainly had a deeper relationship with the Lord. And we've talked about this idea um, going back to what the CNN article says that, you know, conversion therapy is discredited because it asserted that it could change the sexual orientation of a gay or lesbian individual. So inherent in that statement that it's debunked and that you cannot change a gay or lesbian individual is the idea that the gay or lesbian individual doesn't have a choice. So now back to my friend. (laughs) <laughs> he actually officiated my wedding, by the way, and, and we had this conversation. And he said, uh, I love my wife, and I am committed to my wife, and I will always be committed to my wife, but I would like to have sex with a lot of different women. I choose not to. Hmm. So genetically, perhaps, in his DNA, in his base animal form, he would like to go procreate or practice procreating with multiple partners, But his commitment to his wife and to his Christ allows him with this thing called the frontal lobe in your brain where, you know, you have the ability to respond instead of react, where you have the ability to filter emotions and communicate after pausing, (laughs) uh, decided that he didn't want to do the thing that maybe his flesh wanted to do. And therein lies the great, great divide between people who believe that you cannot change and people who believe that you can. People who believe that you can understand that there's the flesh and then there's the mind, the will, and the emotions, and they're separate things. Uh, Nonetheless, up next, uh, we'll be joined by Congressman Warren Davidson. So you'll want to stay tuned to 98.9 FM, The Answer. I'm Jack Windsor filling in for Bruce Hooley. Thanks for tuning in. 